Welcome to Act in Line, the podcast of the Acton Institute for the Study of Religion and Liberty. I'm Caroline Roberts, producer and host. On this episode, we'll first be talking about Kanye West and his new album, Jesus is King. Since the release of Kanye's explicitly Christian record, he's dominated cultural conversation and continues to surprise people with his increasingly conservative opinions, addressing everything from the importance of communities to local churches to sustainability, and even in a recent interview condemning abortion. On this segment, Andrew T. Walker from the Ethics and Religious Liberty Commission joins me to take a look at Kanye's music and cultural influence. Then on the second segment, Bulgarian economist Stefan Kolev explains the importance of Wilhelm Röpke, the 20th century German economist, and explains how Röpke's thoughts on community are still applicable even in our digital age. As always, I've linked relevant articles, books, and videos in the show notes for this episode, and you can read those at blog.acton.org. Also, if you like this podcast and you would like to help us reach even more listeners, you can do that by leaving us a rating and review on the Apple Podcast app. Today, I am talking with Andrew T. Walker on Kanye West and his new album, Jesus is King. Andrew is the director of research and a senior fellow in Christian ethics at the Ethics and Religious Liberty Commission. Andrew, thank you so much for joining me on the podcast. Thanks, Caroline. It's good to be with you. So Kanye's newest album, Jesus is King, dropped on October 25. And there's been a lot of talk about this album because it obviously represents a departure from his previous projects and has topped the charts since its release, even outselling his previous album, Yee. Andrew, what were your expectations for the album? Did it meet them, exceed them? Tell us about that. Sure. And I would say to begin with, I mean, it it far exceeded my expectations. Um, when I first became familiar with the the narrative that Kanye West had converted to Christianity, um, you know, I, I think a, a lot of us sometimes are aware of kind of celebrity conversion narratives, um, and and you know, put forward a little bit of skepticism, a little bit of reluctance, kind of figuring out, you know, what's the nature of the conversion, what type of Christianity are they going to espouse, um, and I think that that reluctance can be both. Um, justified and problematic, uh, d- depending on how you're harboring that that skepticism or, or reluctance. But I think with what we've seen with Kanye West, um, everything looks to be profoundly authentic. And when I was, uh, I was highly anticipating the album, and honestly, just shocked. Uh, I wasn't sure if I would expect kind of moral therapeutic deism type Christianity, uh, where God is there to basically make us feel good, and he's a mascot for our our hopes and desires. Uh, But the Jesus is King album, from start to finish, is filled with lyrics that are provocative, uh, they're informed, uh, it's pushing back against both the culture, um, and it is even, and I'm I'm really shocked at this, the the song Hands On uh, directly kind of confronts the Christian skepticism that Kanye West knows that his conversion is is going to be met with in the Christian community. And he's basically saying, uh, I understand the reluctance, but instead of doubting me, why don't you pray for me? Uh, and so I, really, it's, it's, it's breathtaking what we have seen so far in the album, uh, but also in additionally to his public comments uh, with various interviews, uh, which I'm sure we'll maybe talk about. 
Now, you wrote a few articles, uh, one article in particular on Kanye's conversion and kind of his public persona in the culture for ERLC. Did you listen to or follow Kanye beforehand? I did. Yeah, I'm a a music connoisseur. I would say something I'm pretty passionate about. Um, I wouldn't say that I'm an expert in hip hop uh, or an uh, expert in uh, Kanye West's music, um, but I have... Uh, you know, been following his career for well over a decade and have uh, found him to be an incredible artist, um, someone who is, uh, who, who's, who's cut from a different mold and is an independent thinker. And so have just been really intrigued by him, uh, perhaps less as an entertainer and musician and more as an artist, um, because I think he really does embody um, creativity and novelty in one person. Um, so yeah, yeah, I think, um, I think he's a, a truly unique figure in kind of the American entertainment musician, artistic, uh, lanes for sure. And he's unique in more ways than one, obviously, because he is so countercultural at the moment. And before we started recording here, you even compared some of his thinking to a combination of Chesterton, Wendell Berry, and Wilhelm Ropke. Can you parse that out a little bit for me? How how in the sure. world are you drawing parallels between what is Kanye, what Kanye is saying in his interviews, and, and those three huge thinkers? Sure, sure. So in a lot of various interviews, um, Kanye West is espousing a, a very deeply communitarian social conservatism. I mean, in this interview he does with Zane Lowe uh, on Beats 1, he specifically calls for the local church to be at the center of a culture. Um, he's talking about uh, the need for sustainability. Uh, he's, he's, as I said, he's talking in, in economic and social and cultural categories of uh, Wilhelm Repke, Wendell Berry, uh, G.K. Chesterton. Uh, he's, he's very much thinking in kind of this permanent things strand. Um, and this is seen also uh, in comments he's made as late, um, I, I recall seeing over the weekend, he made comments about abortion even. Uh, and so there's there's some type of social vision that has been uh, in tune with his artistry as well. Uh, and so I would really encourage everyone um, to not just dial into the album, uh, but to see what he's saying in these interviews, because he's offering candid thoughts. Uh, and, and not holding back at all uh, what his convictions are. Uh, I was really shocked. I'm, I'm only 40 minutes into this Zane Lowe interview on Beats One. Uh, it's a two-hour interview. But, I mean, he, he is sounding like a complementarian in his, in his biblical anthropology. He's talking about the need to, uh, you know, protect women's innocence and, and children's innocence. Uh, he, he says that... Um, during the recording of Jesus as King, he was asking people to pray and fast, uh, and he said that he was warning people that if he found out that they were having premarital sex, that they would be banned from helping out with the album. Uh, so if you're, if you're looking for kind of ethical renovation following someone's conversion, there's at least initial fruit uh, being borne out in Kanye West's witness right now. I would imagine that a lot of the people in Kanye's circles and the people that he's worked with in the past are just racking their heads at the moment being like, what is going on? And and saying to themselves, well, Kanye has said some pretty nutty things in the past, but man, like, what is he doing now? So can you speak to kind of the reactions to Kanye's conversion kind of from both sides? Sure. 
so I think I think on the one hand you're going to have some Christians who uh, again might be justified in some of their skepticism just because of kind of celebrity profiles and conversions. So I, I think that's justified on the one hand, um, but as a lot of people have pointed out on social media, uh, it's it's nece- it's not necessarily right to have a default posture of skepticism when someone is. Uh, seen converting in the New Testament, uh, the first default instinct is not to be skeptical. It's to rejoice. And so while people are going to hold that reluctance or skepticism in the back of their head, I think the first instinct that Christians need to cultivate is joy and thanksgiving at what God has done in the heart uh, and mind and life of Kanye West. Now, if you look at it from a different angle, from a more progressive category, I think you would have to have extreme disappointment, um, because Kanye West, if he continues down um, the lane that he is continuing, uh, will be saying things that a lot of cultural progressives and secular progressives will object to. And we're seeing this on comments he's made about abortion, about political correctness, about who to vote for and why and, and why he's going to vote. Um, you can definitely tell that he is one of these kind of cultural wrecking ball type figures, uh, because he's so uh, renowned and, and powerful and iconic in the culture uh, that there's a sense of uh, carelessness that he has when he carries himself, that he just genuinely does not care uh, about the opinions of, of, of his fellow peers. Uh, and so I really do think, depending on where this goes in the long term, uh, he has the ability and a unique ability to upend a lot of the default settled convictions of cultural progressivism um, just by virtue of, of introducing in categories of – I mean, if you, if you go back and, and read the lyrics of Jesus is King, as someone pointed out on Twitter, I mean, he's a, he's a cultural reactionary in the lyrics. Um, he's talking about the need to pray with your family, the need to protect his wife yeah. and children. Oh, was that a Sarab uh, Amari who pointed that out? Yes, it was Sarab. Yes, my, he's a good friend of mine. And uh, he's talking about the need to, uh, I said, yeah, pray with your family, to put down Instagram, uh, and to basically put forth restraints on your life, uh, which is the very opposite of what cultural progressivism would tell you. Uh, so again, I, I really do think that uh, because of his sense of uniqueness. And uh, I mean, he's, he's kind of a daredevil in a sense as well, that I, I'm going to be really following kind of progressivism's reaction to Kanye West, uh, because he's not safely in their box anymore. And if, if I were someone on the far cultural left, uh, I would be very threatened by what Kanye West is saying, because someone with his cultural power has the ability to influence the conversation in a way uh, that would not be favorable to cultural progressives. Well, let's talk about how his voice could be used, uh, because, I mean, I do think that there is a danger of looking to celebrities or really just any public figure in general to look for sort of a cultural redemption, I guess you could say. Right. Um, because, you know, the mission of the Christian is to share the good news of the gospel. It's not first and foremost to change culture. Um, but at the same time, I think that we can rejoice that Kanye is interjecting this um, departure from relativism into the mainstream. So where's the line between that, between realizing that I don't really think that we should look to Kanye or someone converting in general as a as a way of saying, oh, hurrah, we're, we're going to change 
change the culture, but just saying, or at least just being thankful that God is using this huge public figure to spread his name and give God glory. So where do you draw that line? I think you've answered it helpfully somewhat yourself. Um, But but one thing I would add is uh, I think while we can celebrate what seems to be uh, a a definite positive shift in Kanye West, uh, I, at the same time, and I say this as a warning particularly to myself, is I don't want to make a young Christian and a young Christian celebrity uh, kind of a mascot for a cause. So one of my cautions right now to everyone uh, in the Christian community is to kind of back off on Kanye West, um, let him do what he thinks God is calling him to do. And it's evident um, in some of the remarks, he doesn't see himself uh, as as primarily changing the culture. He said this in this interview I've listened to, he views that his calling now is to share the gospel. And I think what you said is correct. Uh, transformed cultures begin with transformed conscience. Exactly. Um, so we should hope that Kanye West does what Kanye West is the best at, which is um, disrupting culture through sincere innovation uh, and see what happens as a result of that and not require him. I, I, I mean, my fear would be that kind of the Christian uh, Christian machine incorporated, so to speak, would now try to have him at the, con- at, the, at the conferences and make him a Christian celebrity of sorts. Um, I think we need to give him time to just be a Christian, to be hopefully discipled by strong Christians around him, uh, and to let him cultivate the proper instincts. I mean, Paul warns against in the New Testament about new believers uh, uh, effectively being given too much too soon and being puffed up, puffed up with pride. Uh, I think there's an admonition in this situation as well. So I think the Christian community just needs to restrain itself towards him and also not try to find social validation in the fact that someone of immense cultural power is one of them, because Christians are always, it seems to me, having an inferiority complex about not being welcomed in the culture. Now that Kanye West is a Christian, the temptation is to think we're, the, we're now the ones in charge. And I don't think that's the right instinct to have. Um, so let's let Kanye just be a Christian before he's a celebrity or an influencer for that matter. What is your favorite track on the album and why? Uh, I like uh, God Is and Selah. Uh, and I, I won't uh, consider myself adept to quote the lyrics uh, myself uh, over here on the radio. But just the, the language of... Um, there's a, there's a language, I believe, in God Is, where he talks about how uh, Christ filled his cup. Um, and the reason I like that language is because, uh, and I put this on social media last week, is everyone comes to Christ and comes to their conversion through a particular narrative. Um, so, you know, Christ is the total Savior. He saves us in all capacities, but there are unique ways in which we come to know Christ. Um, and I think that Kanye West is experiencing Christ as someone who gives him um, both rest and satisfaction, because it's clear uh, from remarks he's made elsewhere uh, that looking to money, sex, and power uh, were not, were not um, th- th- those had diminishing returns in his life. So he was looking for something deeper, something that would, uh, you know, 
living water, so to speak, as Jesus calls himself. And I think he's found that. Kanye has found that in Christ. Uh, and I just think that was a profoundly unique way that, uh, that he's articulated his salvation experience. Well, Andrew, thank you so much for joining me on the podcast. Thank you so much. It's been great. For most of the last half century, struggles over the interpretation of the U.S. Constitution have largely revolved around the competing schools of, first, the living Constitution, associated with judicial activism and political liberalism, as opposed to originalism, associated with judicial restraint and political conservatism. But recently, the originalist school has undergone significant fissures, with some of its adherents supporting judicial engagement and rejecting the counsels of restraint. Because of this, people on both the left and the right in our constitutional politics support some form of judicial activism. On December 5 at the Acton Institute, Matthew J. Frank from Princeton University will be speaking on the rule of law versus the rule of judges. Save your seat today and view our full event calendar at acton.org events. Welcome. My name is Dan Huger, and I'm the librarian and research associate at the Acton Institute. I am joined today by Stefan Kolev, deputy director of the Wilhelm Rupke Institute in Erfurt and professor of political economy at the University of Applied Sciences in Zwickau. We'll be discussing the life and legacy of the German economist Wilhelm Rupke. Stefan, thank you for being with us. Thank you for inviting me. Thanks a lot. Ropke is, is not somebody who's well-known in the English-speaking world, and in late November, Acton will be publishing an anthology of his own writings entitled uh, The Humane Economist, a Wilhelm Ropke Reader. Uh, you've contributed a fine introduction to that. Stefan, who is Wilhelm Ropke, and how does his experience in life sort of shape his, uh, his thought? So, uh, to begin with, he's born in 1899, the same year Hayek was born, and a couple of other interesting economists... Um, on both sides of the Atlantic, what I call the Fondasieco generation. He had to fight the war, and then in the 1920s, he made a pretty stellar career in uh, in Germany. One of the very few youngsters back then who, um, as opposed to the historical school, uh, who was doing largely our theoretical analysis, really uh, became an economic theorist. And he was extremely important as a public intellectual as a, and as a theorist during the Great Depression, which, of course, hit Germany particularly badly in the early 30s, had some curious ideas about how to both diagnose and uh, treat the Great Depression. But in 1933, uh, an awful age began, and so he decided to to emigrate. Some of his friends remained in Germany, but uh, to him that was not an option. So uh, he moved to Istanbul uh, for four years and then was lucky in 37 to get a position at Geneva, where he stayed for the rest of his life in that, until 1966. And uh, out of there, he was, again, both an important political economist and an important social philosopher for the difficult war years and for the post-war decades. Um, pretty formative for the German debates, uh, for the German social market economy, for the early stages of European integration, um, but also as a public intellectual in newspapers, um, radio programs, and, uh, and the like. So quite, a, quite an intriguing figure. Um, I hope the reader which the Acton Institute has produced will help to give him some new visibility. When you make that distinction between 
Rupke is an economic thinker who's primarily a theorist as opposed to the German historical school doing uh, sort of just historical analysis of economic phenomena. In what way did that role as, as a theorist help him address issues of public policy in Germany and then, and then also, and also around the world? So the historical school is a curious thing. I, um, I think we, unlike many historians of economics do, um, I, think, I don't think we should bash it too much, but there is an important distinction here. The historical school was in love with methodological, epistemological debates about methods, about normativity. But then in the 1920s, of course, um, after World War I had created that huge damage on the economic order, those debates were of not much use for the practical problems of the day. Right? So Germany, of course, had uh, the hyperinflation in the early 1920s, for which the historical school didn't have an answer because it didn't have a proper monetary theory. And then when the Great Depression hit in, you again needed a coherent business cycle theory to explain what was going on and to say what is to be done. So uh, methodolog methodological inquiries or uh, questions of normativity was not what the public was expecting from economists. And so in that respect, the young generation to which uh, Röpke Björn back then um, really was better equipped. I wouldn't say um, perfectly equipped, but given their poor education in theory, they actually did quite a, quite a good job to both think what has to be done and to communicate it to the public. I think what is really important for Röpke especially is that he spent lots and lots and lots of time of his time and energy to persuade the citizen, the public, uh, of what is to be done, not in an elitist conception of politics where you try to convince some bureaucrats or politicians only, but really to try to reach out to the normal citizen and to explain uh, what has to be done. So having a theory and having the willingness to explain that theory to the normal citizen as sort of a consultant to the citizen, as James Buchanan would say, was his uh, understanding of what a political, political economy should do. Could you give our audience uh, some examples of some of those reforms that Rupke would have uh, would have liked to have seen, many of which did come to pass, but um, the sort of reforms he advocated, uh, both in his, his position as an academic economist and as sort of a public intellectual? So I think that the Great Depression is a curious example. I mean, many people know the Austrian business cycle theory to which uh, Rupke basically subscribed, saying that uh, once the boom is over, there is a recession, and the recession has some purification effects. He agreed about that, and so when the Great, Repre uh, when the Great Depression hit in, he said um, the first thing government should do is wait uh, for that purification process to take place. But then he said it might be that the, that the depression has two phases, a primary phase and a secondary phase. And so the primary phase is this helpful phase of the purification where government should wait. But if, if a secondary phase hits in, which means that um, the depression starts to, to affect sectors of the economy which had not been affected by the boom, if it really turns into a mass psychology phenomenon of of, of a real depression in the sense of a mental depression, then he said in that secondary phase of the depression, government should start using some expansionary tools so that the economy can be, as he would say, reignited, um, so to get an initial ignition so that uh, prosperity can start again, which I think at the time was also quite important, um, not only for economic reasons, but also for political reasons. Um, so he was hoping that the last 
Weimar cabinets uh, in the 19, early 1930s would show by such measures their both willingness and capability to do something, whereas the political order otherwise seemed quite defunct. So for the older liberals to whom uh, Röpke belonged, uh, this notion of interdependence of orders is extremely important. So here you can see that doing something in the economic order, meaning expansionary politics in the secondary phase of the Depression, is not only important for economic reasons, but also quite important or perhaps at least as important for political reasons. So um, saving the political order by showing that it's able to act. Uh, and then once this political order has survived, um, one can again fine-tune the economy. Unfortunately, it didn't work out uh, because many people didn't see it like uh, he did it, but he really he, he took a position which was not only smart in terms of economics, but really prescient in terms of unfortunately of what unfortunately happened in terms of political developments which he with all his power tried to prevent so there's there's the the emphasis on sound economic policy but also an acknowledgement that there is a world beyond economics of politics of social institutions and that there may be times when it's appropriate to intervene to shore up those other institutions that are necessary for human and social life. Precisely. So the economy is really an embedded entity, an embedded order within the larger order of society. So we should not be economists only. I mean, people know this uh, quotation of Hayek that a good economist cannot be an economist uh, who is only an economist. And actually he coins that phrase, uh, to my knowledge at least, uh, for the first time when he... um, when he has um, some laudatory things to say about Röpke uh, at his 60th birthday. So the economist should not be uh, um, what Röpke uh, would say, economistic. So think only about the economic order, but always see the economic order as this interdependent entity embedded in society. So connected to politics, connected to the legal order, connected to the religious order, connected to the order of science. Because otherwise we uh, become, in a bad way, specialists. We need to specialize, but we need to be specialists with interfaces to those other societal orders and always think in those relationships. And Rupke was excellent at that. He is, when, when you read him, it's, it's amazing how well-read he is and how wide his knowledge in the humanities is. And in political theory... In legal theory and in ethics, um, he really brings that to bear on all of the questions he addresses. Um, he also has a strong emphasis on the sort of moral and religious framework that a society should have. Um, could you speak to how how he addresses that, and that and that gets into sort of sort of the humanities grounding as well, because it's it's. You know, there's an institutional place in the realm of religion with, with the church and in the realm of, of morals with the family, but he also sees the ideas as very, very essential as well. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, he, I, like to, I like to put it like that. The older liberals, but also Hayek, were extremely worried about the rules of the game. So um, we play those games in the different orders of society, and so the question is, what are the good rules? But then uh, Röpke asks an additional question. He says, okay, uh, we can have great rules of the game, but then as we experienced in 1917 in Russia or in 1933 in Germany, the whole playing ground can crash, right? So the whole um, 
stadium on which that game is played with the good rules can actually uh, break apart. And so his question is, what are the foundations of that stadium or of that playing ground on which we play the games of economy and society? And here it really comes to, as you said, to values, traditions, to institutions like the family, but also institutions of civil society, which um, sort of as a constant uh, reservoir provide those foundations. He is skeptical or, or pretty skeptical that markets produce those foundations themselves. They don't. So um, the viability of, that, of those foundations, the stability of the foundations come, has to come from somewhere else. And uh, um, this is where his, um, yeah, I would say love for small units comes. So um, basically saying that um, it's small units of the family, the small units of a society which does not fall prey to massification, which enables people to, on a constant basis, live a moral life. And living that moral life will make them immune to uh, the ideologies of the 19th and 20th century, which on quite a few occasions killed uh, the free order. So uh, that, is, uh, that is how I see it, really worried about the foundations of, of their playing ground and thinking about all those pillars which are necessary to stabilize it. The state is one of them, but not actually the essential one. The essential one is what we would call today informal institutions uh, that are needed both on the individual level and on the group level so that people um, persevere with all the tensions which modernity poses on us human beings. If we succeed with that, then the playing ground will be sustainable and then we can play uh, the games of modernity. If not, uh, we can fall back into tribalisms of all kinds as it happened in Germany in 1933. There are some interesting places in his writings where he kind of pushes back on the Marxist class analysis of, of how proletarianization happens. And he views this as, as, not, as not merely a, a material struggle of capital and labor, but a struggle of values between a sort of bourgeois values of family, respect for private property, thrift, versus a proletarian sort of antagonistic attitude towards uh, society, a uh, one that minimizes the value of private property, one that, uh, you know, doesn't see debt as an extravagance. He, th he sees this as, as, as a cultural struggle. And, and that is, and that is in, in that way, the, the, the ideas are the leaders. Um, you know, you don't, you don't have markets emerge without the traditions of ethics, law, and economics, and those institutions that arose in the place that they do and can foster those sorts of values and that sort of spirit of enterprise, competition, rule of law. Absolutely. So um, proletarization is a term which he and his friends use, but as you said, not in the material sense, but in the, in the spiritual sense. So if people spiritually become proletarians, that would mean that uh, they get detached from the values which uh, which we discussed and become an easy uh, an easy target for uh, those new um, anti-humanistic ideologies which are around. I think uh, in that respect he can really be called a communitarian, right? So he's really really worried that only 
small communities, be it the family or the small town or independent small enterprises, are able to embed the individual to sort of protect him from that mass character of modernity, which he's uh, worried about, and to, by that, also preserve uh, the individual from becoming a prey of um, of those dangerous ideologies and becoming a spiritual proletarian. Um, let me put it in that way. So I think it's interesting to contrast Hayek and uh, Röpke here. So Hayek, of course, has this uh, perennial um, anxiety that um, we have lived for many, many millennia in the logic of the small community, and so that logic of the small community can constantly threaten the, co- the logic of the extended order. And so that's what he's worried about. And uh, Röpke is worried about the opposite. So um, how modern society, modern um, life of that extended order can actually harm uh, the small community, which is so necessary so that people remain embedded and um, do not lose their roots and by that become susceptible or prone to this um, becoming spiritual proletarians. So um, he really is worried that, we, as, as Hayek, we live in those two worlds, but Hayek is worried about the world of the community becoming a danger for the world of society, whereas uh, Röpke is worried about the world of society harming um, that communitarian aspects which are so important to him to preserve the individual. And by the way, I think this is very important uh, when we look at our world today. And globalization, as we have it, reinforces that logic of the extended order of of society, uh, whereas digitalization reinforces the logic of the community. So I'm really curious how those tensions, which uh, Hayek and Röpke see in the pre-digital world, how they will play out in our globalized and digitalized world of today. Uh, but the tensions quite certainly exist, right? So we do live in these two worlds, and uh, each and every one of us has to cope with the tension of having these very different logics in us and uh, coexisting in them. When when you extend that argument to to an argument about about a sort of globalization and a political and and maybe an, an economic sense, but a sort of a, a digital uh, font of communities. Could you un- unpack that a little bit? Because I, I think that's a fascinating argument. So I see it like this. In our real life, in the sense of our, let's say, um, in our jobs, in our, um, yeah, let's say, in the life beyond the digital, right? So the, the way we just uh, we just live. Globalization for many, many decades, or probably centuries and millennia, has made us, has unfolded the necessity to be ever more mobile, to be to learn languages which uh, we wouldn't speak in the small community, so to open up to uh, that wonderful thing which Adam Smith would call the great society, meaning uh, millions or billions of people who interact with each other um, through trade, through um, um, today also investment and migration. So we have that. And globalization, of course, as we've had it in in the last 150 years, has really reinforced that uh, part of our coexistence which could, and again, that was Röpke's main concern, uh, kill or at least um, impair our life in the community because if we move around all the time in our jobs and we switch locations all the time, it's quite difficult to be uh, rooted in a community because we, because you change the communities you live in on a constant basis. So I'm really curious uh, in a positive sense 
Uh, to what extent digitalization will enable us um, to experience a sort of a comeback of the community um, um, in the sense that I'm from Bulgaria, I live in Germany, um, Facebook and Skype have enabled me to connect back to my old Bulgarian friends and uh, circles which were lost for quite a few years. And so our real life can remain globalized, but our digital life um, enables us to uh, to to get back to our communities so that perhaps the tension of only living in a globalized world without too much uh, without too many roots can be sort of uh, sort of ameliorated by by having the communities in our phone right um, it could work out nicely in the sense that we say okay now I can bear uh, the life of uh, um, of the globalized uh, great society better but of course it could also create the tension right that the two logics uh, become into um, or get into an even greater tension uh, than uh, it was in the pre-digital world but i'm an optimist i think that um, at least in my case it has really worked out i uh, so currently i'm in my sabbatical in in the us and because of those media i don't feel so detached from my communities neither in Germany nor in Bulgaria as I would if um, the digital world did not exist. So it could be that those megatrends of our of our days make the tensions which Hayek and Hotke are so worried about perhaps a little bit easier to live with. No, that is, that is an amazing and, and as, as you can see, it's, uh, you know, the thoughts of Rupke are, are very much alive and with us today and can help us grapple with these questions of the intersection of society, institutions, technology. Um, Stefan, thank you so much for being with us today um, and introducing us to this, uh, to this important figure and, and giving us some very useful applications for his thought. Thank you for the invitation. Thank you for listening today. If you want to learn more about the Acton Institute and what we do, check out our website at acton.org. That's A-C-T-O-N dot O-R-G. If you want to reach our podcast team here at Acton and let us know what you think of the show, you can email us at actonline at acton.org. Last but not least, don't forget to subscribe to this podcast on Apple Podcasts, Stitcher, Google Play, or wherever you listen. 